Oh, <laughs> we got a message from uh, a listener whose dad's name is Mr. Greer, and they were a teacher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, what was that? Was that the the stinger or last? Yeah, last I think episode? it was the stinger last episode. <laughs> yeah. What if it was your teacher? <laughs> Welcome to episode 454 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Lovett. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, what do we got on the docket for today? Oh boy, we got a spicy one. We have a listener question this week asking, uh, you know, a really straightforward question. Is UI design actually important? Great question. Hmm. Uh, we'll get into that. And then in the sidebar, we're going to be talking about some niche software, some situated software. We're going to be talking about the most buck wild interaction design you've ever seen in the calendar app. So no joke. Stay tuned. No exaggeration for real. Buck wild. No exaggeration. Anyways, before we get into it, huge shout outs to Catch for making this episode possible. Catch asks, why did you become a freelancer? Was it for freedom? Was it for flexibility? Well, it probably wasn't because you want to manage your own health insurance, taxes, and retirement. Catch can do all that for you. They offer benefits and personal payroll for the self-employed. You can compare benefits and insurance across carriers, find the best price, and they make it easy to renew your current plan, find a better one, or enroll for the first time. So make sure you're covered for 2023, all you freelancers out there, at catch.co slash design details slash health to renew your coverage or find a better plan. Once again, that's catch.co slash design details slash health. Link in the show notes. Thanks, Catch. We also have some new VIPs. Ooh, hey. Very important pixels. Welcome to the fam. Shout outs to M, Randy Oast, Eric Nielsen, Paddle, Jacob Kosla, Annika Agarwal, and last but not least, this guy. <laughs> this guy. This guy with the thumbs. This guy. <laughs> but it's not actually me. It's actually this guy. <laughs> Wait, is it you? No, it's this guy. <laughs> Okay, just checking. Anyways, welcome to the fam, everybody. If you didn't know, we're a listener-supported podcast, which means that people like you and people like this guy <laughs> join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash design details, where for just a buck a month, just a buck a month, they get access to bonus content. We call that bonus content the sidebar. Sidebar, sidebar. Sidebar is just that. An extra little aside, a little extra design details to get you through those long, cold weeks where it's rainy outside and you just want to hear some people talking about design in your ears. So if you want that, if you're missing out on all that juicy bonus content, go to patreon.com slash design details. In this week's sidebar, we're going to be talking about some niche software and some of the craziest interaction designs you've ever seen in the calendar app. Mm -hmm. But if you sign up, you also get access to our entire back catalog at this point of over 100 sidebars mm -hmm. and of course access to future sidebars. So just a buck a month. Patreon.com slash design details. Thank you everyone for supporting the show. Welcome to the Marshall, hot we have tub. A bit of follow up. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> yeah, we do have a little bit of follow up. Okay, so I believe it was two episodes ago we talked about Twitter's updates and the latest things, including their view count being added as part of the stats under each tweet. Uh -huh. And since then, they have moved its positioning. We we lamented its location in that list. It is the first thing, the leftmost, the leading thing. Uh, and we thought it should be further down on that list with other things prioritized because most people will read from left to right. 
and I assume this is it'd be flipped in a right to left language, although I haven't checked. But correct, no, probably true. Yeah. yeah, but they have moved it, and it is now what the fourth item before share or something. Yeah, yeah, goes like replies, retweets, likes, view count. And funny enough, they switched it back, and now I keep mistapping things again. Like, it's funny because I believe that you should ship quickly and not worry too much about like rearranging things or be aggressive in cutting things. But for something as sticky as Twitter, where people engage with things in a very common pattern over and over and over again, you know, tapping the like button mm-hmm. to rearrange. UI elements like this multiple times over the course of just a few weeks has been incredibly disorienting. <laughs> like destroying your muscle memory? Yeah, I mean, I just keep tapping the view count, which opens a really unhelpful dialogue that says, like, this is the number of views. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yep. So anyways. But yeah, slight update there. So, of course, they listen to us because, you know, Elon's got his finger on the pulse of design details, obviously. So I think he tuned in, dude. Uh-huh. I think he tuned in. Uh-huh. Uh, one other piece of follow-up we have is the type stack conversation we had last episode. A few of you listeners wrote in and uh, had some really great suggestions, so I will read those thusly. All right, first up we have Joey Perlman, who shared IBM Carbon's two separate type stacks. So they have, instead of trying to do everything in one with like some display stylings or whatever, they have two separate type stacks, one called Productive, for product design and one called expressive for marketing and never the twain shall meet. And the way that you reference that semantic is you add a suffix onto each one where zero one is productive and zero two is expressive. That's kind of interesting that it's number based rather than like the actual name productive or expressive. So that if they decide to change what one means and what two means down the road, there's room to do that. Uh, But yeah, thanks for sharing that part, Joey. And we also heard from... Victor Kearns, who shared some screenshots of a similar pattern, it seems, uh, at Hodinkee, their type stack uses a similar thing like expressive and functional as opposed to productive, but same kind of idea here. These are really interesting uh, insights into the way other people are doing it. This is exactly what we asked for, and I'm so glad that you came through on this because it's so confusing, Brian. Mm Type stacks are are a wild realm to live in. Yeah. Well, thanks for the tweets, y'all. Yeah, thank you. All right, Brian, what's next? Okay, spicy listener question for our main topic. This one comes from Viktor Atanasov, who opened their first ever issue on GitHub, put it on my perf, Oh. So actually, you don't have perf oh. on GitHub anymore. I don't have perf anymore. Yeah. Take it off my perf. Yeah. <laughs> Put it on my retroactive perf. There you go. Okay. Victor asks on our GitHubs, is UI design actually that important? Bam. Mm. Mic drop. Wow. <gasps> Spicy. The audience gasped. <laughs> My pearls are clutched, Brian. (laughs) Clutch those B-boys because we got a whole story to tell. Okay, so Victor is not a designer, more of a business person who cares about craftsmanship. And Victor says, I recently interviewed for a startup and one of my tasks was to list a few things that would help them with growing and scaling. As their audience was developers and their website was very average in terms of UI design, I mentioned that spending time crafting a bit more of their landing page, developer platform, and overall brand would help them get noticed within the developer community and get people talking. I used the reasoning of craftsmanship for the sake of craftsmanship and gave examples with Linear and Stripe, who take that to the next level and people love them for that exact reason. Attention to details. The response I got was, our message is clear, 
We are getting new customers. We don't get complaints. Who cares if the button radius is 8 pixels or 12 pixels, or if green doesn't go well with yellow? People use us for our functionality, not for our design. I struggled to give an adequate response to that. What's a good argument against that? Mm. Yeah. Marshall. Wow. Is UI design actually that important? So we had a little pre-conversation about this. It had some meat on those bones. Um, And I think my first reaction to this after reading it was like, well, that's a decision for you to make as a company. If you don't care about design and if things are working just fine for you and you're getting customers and nobody's complaining, then you know, that, that's a perfectly reasonable way to move forward. Tons of companies take that route of like never hire a designer, just engineers build everything and it's functional and it works and there's no bugs. And if that's the bar, then that's cool. But then the thing that you said at the very beginning was a PS in the original message of, oh, by the way, I'm not a designer, more of a business person which is like, oh, oh, okay. That's why they're asking about growth and scaling and stuff. So yeah, my, my initial response was a little bit offended, but like, yeah, that's a choice you can totally make as a business and it might work out for you. It might not, I'm not sure, but I'm probably biased, you know? Yeah, I, I think the startup's position here was fairly reasonable, actually. Like imagine you're a startup and you're trying to grow, right? I agree that crafting the visuals are probably not going to move the needle. I think for a startup to care about that, it speaks more to the philosophy of the founding team or the early employees, just about what they value in the world, what they want to put their stamp on, what they want to be associated with. And I think the examples given here, like Linear and Stripe, maybe Linear is the more clear example here. I think that team takes a lot of pride in being able to say, I made that right? Like we shipped that that went so far above and beyond what's expected to become something beautiful and delightful. But I also think there's lots of examples of companies who have done the same thing and ultimately failed, right? Like probably the the prototypical example here would be RDO, which was a beautiful music player app that ultimately just didn't win in the marketplace. You know, Path. I was going to say Path. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think these startups probably know about those examples and they probably recognize that that level of fit and finish does not equal, equal, equal success. And so to say, look, we're focused actually on having a clear message that resonates with the customer we are targeting and solves their problem. We don't really care about border radius or our color selection. That's fine. So anyways, I I think the startup took a pretty reasonable approach here. I think where you'd be able to push back would be, does your customer care about that? Or would the UI design details of your product have an impact on its usability or on the ability for somebody to complete a task or scan an interface? Like That's where I think user interface design can make a huge difference. So I actually... It's, it's not that I think user interface design is not important. I think we're just talking about the degree to which you craft the small details versus the degree to which you craft the details that actually have meaningful impact on the job to be done, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. And I would argue it sounds like they've maybe, I don't know anything about the startup you interviewed at or their product, but if they have customers who are signing up and not complaining and paying for it and it's solving their problem, it sounds like some of the UI design is probably working, right? Like, 
there must be some clear flow through the product or some clear way to complete an action or click a button or scan a list of things. I don't know. It just seems like maybe the stuff that we think of UI fit and finish like animations or hover states or, you know, perfect drop shadows, like maybe that stuff didn't make it in, right? Yeah, yeah. The yeah, fit and finish, the polish at the end, the last 2%, which can take, you know, 40% of the time if you really want to push it. Yeah. yeah and I, I totally understand a, a startup not wanting to devote all that extra time to something that's already working just fine. That's yeah, kind of the point as we get earlier of like, there's no bugs and it's working and people are able to get through their flows. Nobody's complaining like, yeah, maybe you don't need to improve the design. Maybe you don't need a designer at all. But there's also the question of like, are people not complaining because there's nothing to complain about? Or are people not complaining because they're able to muddle their way through? And I don't know what kind of research this company is doing, but um, a lot of times there's hidden friction that you don't notice until you ask about it or really like dive in with somebody and like do a diary study or like you know, see how they actually use the product, watch them do their job. And you realize, oh, <laughs> they don't understand this thing that I thought was very obvious or they have this workaround for a thing that I didn't even know was a problem or a thing that they wanted to do, but they figured out a way to mash something together and make it work. This is the type of stuff that having maybe not UI design, but like a UX focus, both from like the research and the design side of things, like figure out if everything is working as well as it could be, if there's any hidden problems that you just don't know about and people aren't bothered enough to complain about regularly. And then, you know, the solutions for those could heavily improve everyone's experience and you never would have known. Yeah. I think also it's interesting to talk about the examples that were called out here, like Linear and Stripe, because Linear is an interesting case where they've taken a tool that basically everybody in software development uses, some issue tracker, right? And they really applied craftsmanship to the issue tracking experience across the board from marketing through to the product. But I actually think that Linear's real superpower is just performance, like speed, making things accessible by a keyboard shortcut, working relatively well offline, having a progressive web app that you can load on your phone. Like some of those things aren't necessarily UI details, but they're interaction and, and usability details that make using the thing feel great. It's just that the UI layer on top is what's so much easier to talk about. But I think, you know, undergirding that is a really great user experience, or at least they've solved problems that every other issue tracker is plagued by usually, you know, performance, slow page loads, um, just hard to, to scan and find the information you're looking for. And then same with Stripe, right? Like Stripe came along and yes, their marketing pages design has always been beautiful. But really, I think where Stripe found their foothold was just creating beautiful, simple, easy to follow documentation for how to build payments experiences into your app. And that was the thing that was missing at the time, right? Now everybody has scrambled to catch up. And I think Stripe, you know, through their dashboard has caught up and has evolved. But really like the docs was the thing. They had a really readable, usable docs. And the UI fit and finish on top was icing on the cake. So I don't know. I, I like I think UI design is important and we could get into a million. It depends on like the stage of the company and the problem that you're trying to solve and the philosophy of the founders. 
But I also think we can't simply attribute Linear and Stripe's early success to UI design when, in fact, it's all these other elements that came together to create a better experience than what existed in the marketplace. Okay, so here's maybe the unasked question here is like, what aspects of UI, not UX, but like UI, specifically interface elements, can move the needle when it comes to growth and scale? Is that even an answerable question? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I've honestly never worked on a growth team and I don't know much about growth that typically is like a marketing or an ads problem. And so I imagine they're like copywriting and type hierarchy and like having clear calls to action probably help. I don't know. There's like elements of UI design there. But yeah, I actually don't know that much about growth. I mean, certainly can imagine running experiments on like landing pages or onboarding and certainly visuals are going to help in those cases, right? Like, is it clear what I should be doing next based on the color of some element or the way some element creates contrast with its surrounding elements, right? Like that thing is clearly the next step of this tutorial or the next tool tip I should be focusing on. Um, and it's clear because it has a gentle shadow or animated lightly down from top to bottom. I don't know, like, those are the things that I think could probably like nudge conversions around in certain flows. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I guess it it depends on what growth means. It depends, Brian. The, the full answer to this question is it depends. But yeah, it depends on what growth means for that company. Is that like user acquisition? Is that engagement? Is that time on product? Yeah, I agree. You know, I'm I'm sitting here kind of re-skimming the question. And I think maybe an interesting angle here is in today's hyper competitive marketplace where there's 10 apps to do any given thing, certainly the perception of being high quality might matter when it comes to growth, mm-hmm. right? Like if, mm-hmm. if someone is evaluating two solutions, <laughs> yeah, they might look a at a variety of factors to make that decision. One of the factors could be social proof. They might look for longevity of the business. They might look at like a change log and look at pace of development. And they might also look at, does this thing feel like it was updated in the last decade? And if not, is that a service that I trust to, I don't know, keep up to date with modern needs of my enterprise, my startup, right? Mm-hmm. And there's like an almost an interesting catch-22 there where like the older it looks, <laughs> presumably they've figured out how to stand the test of time. But I think the less modern it feels, the less you might feel like it's made for you. It almost feels like it's made for an older version of the internet since things are changing so quickly. So that might be the strongest argument of why you might invest in redoing your landing page and rebuilding your docs and rebranding is just the perception of newness and quality could be a competitive advantage depending on the industry in which you're working and what the competitive landscape looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, if your product looks old, how do I know that your code isn't also old and you know gathering dust just like this interface is? And and maybe having good design is a value that I would want to be held by any product that I committed to. So it's like 
I'm going to pass on you because if you don't care about design, then we don't have a value alignment or whatever. Whereas I don't think that, oh, you do care about design is going to be a deal breaker for people. You know what I mean? I think it's only a plus. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny too, because probably your and my perspective on this is very different than an actual enterprise software buyer's perspective. Because usually an enterprise software buyer doesn't have an eye for those kinds of things or just might not care. And really the things that matter to them are cost and the contractual terms and some sort of measurable ROI, right? Like depends on the buyer. So I guess that circles us back to the beginning of this conversation. Like who is the startup trying to impress? Yeah, I have an example. Um, I saw this game recently, a little, little aside here. Um, I saw a game recently called A Little to the Left. It's like an OCD simulator. Anyways, it was on Steam. It was like an indie game. And I was like, oh, it's probably be perfect for mobile. I'm going to check that iOS app store and see if it's already in there. And sure enough, I searched A Little to the Left and I found an app. And I was like, wait a second. It's called a little to the left and it's doing the same thing that the video I saw was doing, but like, this doesn't look as nice. And this looks like the dollar store version of the app I was trying to find. Never mind, I'm not going to buy this. And I was able to like not waste money on an imposter. I don't know if that's a good example of this type of thing, but it's like, it's essentially judging a book by its cover, but I don't know. Yeah. That goes against the whole meaning yeah. of that. <laughs> Of that uh, axiom of don't judge a book by its cover, but like people do. And a lot of times it's right when it comes to how much you care about building a product. If the surface level stuff isn't taken care of, how do I know that the under surface level is taken care of? Cool. Lots to think about here. I don't know. Hopefully some of these details were were helpful. Sorry you got stuck on that question in the interview. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think UI design is important, but hopefully some of those points add a little bit of nuance mm -hmm. to the conversation. Yeah, I think maybe the the actual answer to that question, is UI design actually that important? It is that important, but a well-functioning, ugly product is always superior to a beautiful, non-functioning product or poorly functioning product. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's maybe this is a topic for another day is we've entered this really interesting era of landing page design becoming pretty high quality across the board by default. Like I feel like people have stepped up their game in general. Brand new startups have pretty good landing pages. Sometimes it's because they contract out through an agency or sometimes the building blocks that we use have just gotten so much better. I think Tailwind has played a, a meaningful part in this, especially in the developer tools space, where now what you often have is highly crafted, visually beautiful landing pages and a shit product. And that jarring experience of going from high expectations and beautiful front door to a crappy, buggy, janky <laughs> interior space I feel like that's become par for the course now. And it's really, it's worth managing that, I think. Mm -hmm. Like actually having your landing page set some reasonable expectations for what your product can do and what it will feel like. I don't know. Lots of tension there, but yeah, I agree overall. Product's got to be useful. Product's got to survive. It's got to make money. Doesn't matter how pretty your buttons are if uh, you can't make money. Exactly. Cool. Well, wonderful question, Victor. Thank you for asking it. And if you'd like to ask a question, you can do so at github.com slash design details slash design details. I did not stutter. You have to do it twice. <laughs> slash org slash repo. Cool. <laughs> cool. Cool things. 
Cool things, Brian. Uh, it's like the Spider-Man meme. I'm pointing at you. You're pointing at me. Uh, we both had the same cool mm-hmm. thing this week. So uh, mm-hmm. I'll let you go mm-hmm. first. I have I, I I pivoted to a variation. So you go first and then I'll go. You watching The Last of Us, Marshall? <laughs> I have heard of it. Yeah. I didn't play the games, but I'm watching this show on HBO. And from what I've read on the subreddit, it's a pretty faithful video game adaptation. Oh, yeah. Right. And anyways, The Last of Us, for people who don't know, is a romantic comedy about... Mm-hmm. Uh, Ashton Kutcher and <laughs> Catherine Heigl. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, no, The Last of Us. Um, based on the video game about a post-apocalypse zombie land type world. And I'm, I don't know anything about how the game goes. Uh, there's a girl in it. There's a guy in it. There's zombies in it. It's spooky. The crazy thing is the first like 20 minute opening sequence of the first episode was really intense. Like that was some intense TV. And I think it's like my favorite part of apocalyptic movies is seeing the transition from life as we know it Uh to the apocalyptic state, Mm -hmm. especially day zero, right? Like I love day zero stories of, you know, here's how it started and here's how people reacted in the first moments where there was the maximum amount of uncertainty and fear. And yeah, that's basically the first half hour of the first episode of The Last of Us. And I understand the video games follows the same thing. So yeah, that's my cool thing is The Last of Us on HBO. I think people uh, should watch it even if you haven't played the game, if you're into something. It's not really scary, but there's definitely like horror elements and there's zombies in it. Yeah, so it's a zombie movie. Hopefully that's enough of a disclaimer. Yeah. 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 Ah, I'm so glad we're talking about this. Okay, so... I did play the game. I played the first game and I watched a playthrough of the second game because I didn't have the time to play it. It is incredibly faithful. And I hope anyone who makes a video game adaptation after this uses this as the template of don't change it. It was good the first time. Like you don't need to please everybody. If you please the people who played it in the first place, you'll probably please everybody. Just follow the script. It was good the first time. You know, you can make some changes here and there as necessary for the medium, but like for the most part, don't touch it. And that's what they did here. And the writer of this show is Craig Mazin, who I think I've brought up on podcast before, but he does a podcast with a guy named John August called Script Notes that I've listened to for like a decade. And he also wrote Chernobyl, that TV show on HBO that came out after he finished that. They were like, what do you want to work on? He's like, I want to work on Last of Us. And he's working with Neil Druckmann, the guy who wrote the video game or created the story for the video game, both the first and the second one. Uh, So it's like from the source, it is not a bunch of suits touching it, making it bad and wrong. (laughs) It's like a pure adaptation. Yeah. So keep going. Tell me about the podcast. Okay, so yeah, I I guess I kind of spoiled the thing there. So yeah, there's a, a podcast that releases like day and date with the episodes on HBO. And it is Neil Druckmann, Craig Mazin, the two guys I just mentioned. And it's hosted by Troy Baker, who played Joel in the games. Okay. Uh, So it's the three of them talking each episode about Mm -hmm. the episode that just aired, some behind the scenes information, some thoughts on how they went from adapting the game to the show. For example, on the show, 
there are no spores in the game. It's a pretty major mechanic that there are certain places that are sufficiently fungified that you need to wear a gas mask. Otherwise, if you breathe in enough spores, you'll turn. So like there's always this this scare. But I think in the TV show, they were like, it's too unbelievable for us viewers to think that like there's spores going like the whole world has been taken over, but there's still people able to live and breathe without getting infected. But it's interesting to hear the thoughts behind that of like what works in a game and what is acceptable in a game is not necessarily acceptable. TV yeah, show. I like that detail. Yeah. I didn't hear that in the podcast. I heard that in like the I think it was in the episode two recap or something. Yeah. Interview. And if you if you watch the after the show, there's like a little bit of behind the scenes at the end of every episode. And some of those talking points in there are in the podcast. It's usually Craig just giving the same interview twice, you know, say having the same thing to say. But really great. I mean, I loved Chernobyl. Did you watch that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Great. So it's good shit. I'm I'm just excited to see that like not only does it exist. But it's good and people like it, right? Not all three of those things have to be true at the same time. So I'm happy that they are. Cool. Cool. Love it. Cool thing. Last of Us show and podcast. We're on the same wavelength. Yeah, this week combined. March. I think I might even have just a single chapter. Brian and Marshall's cool thing. Nice. Uh, <laughs> cool. Well, this has been episode 454 of the Design Details podcast. We hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, let us know what you think. As always, we are on Twitter at Design Details FM. If you have your own question you want to ask for us to talk about in a future episode, hit us up. We're on the GitHubs at Design Details on GitHub. And if you are enjoying it and want to keep this good audio train rolling, head over to patreon.com slash design details where you can subscribe to the sidebar for sidebar, just sidebar. a buck a month. Just a buck a month. There you go. Nice. So thanks to everyone who joined the fam this week. Thank you to everyone else listening who will hopefully come on into that warm hot tub of sidebar listeners. That's it. Catch you next time. Bye. Victor Kearns, who works at Hodinkee. Wait, am I saying that right? Probably saying that wrong. Hodinkee? Yeah, Hodinkee. Yeah, Hodinkee. Hodinkee? Is it like something that is uh, has the quality of Hodink? <laughs> or is it like Hoden who has a key? Like Hodinkee? Or is it Hodinkee? <laughs> Hodinkee. I searched pronounce Hodinkee and all I'm getting is videos made by Hodinkee on how to pronounce watch names. Yeah, yeah, I see that result too. <laughs> <laughs> just just say it fast. <laughs>